0: to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter, uh oh I guess chapter one here. We'll start there and work our way through. And uh, as you know, we have been coming through the Bible, but as we've been coming through the Bible, we have been bringing your attention to different aspects of the books of the Bible. We showed you how that five of the books really show you the premillennial return of the Lord Jesus Christ as we came through it. And then we, when we got into the book of Job, I told you how the book of Job began uh, the five wisdom books in the Bible, five books in your Bible that basically represent everything in the rest of the Word of God, and uh, we talked about uh, the book of Job, we talked about the book of Psalms. Last week, we covered the book of Proverbs, and I showed you how that the book of Proverbs was really the mind of God, Job being the sufferings of God, Psalms being the heart of God, and Proverbs being the mind of God. I showed you how that the book of Proverbs is really the baseline for all truth in the Bible. And um, if there's any book in the Bible that really opens up the mind of God, uh, it's the book of Proverbs. And, you know, I feel so inadequate in the things that I said last week, even though, you know, they were all true and everything was there. There's just so much that you can't do. And even if we had, you know, all the time in the world to do it, we still couldn't get it done the way we need to. That book is something that continues to give us revelations about life and ourselves, even as we grow older in the Lord and the Holy Spirit of God can show us those things. Today we're going to talk about the book of Ecclesiastes. And where the book of Job shows us the sufferings of God, the book of Psalms shows us the heart of God, and the book of Proverbs shows us the mind of God, the book of Ecclesiastes shows us the mind of the Spirit. Now I don't know if you know it or not, but um, Romans chapter eight verse twenty-seven says that God has God's spirit has a mind, and that mind the Bible tells us in Romans chapter eight searches the hearts of men. When you come to the book of Ecclesiastes, here's what you have. And we're gonna we're gonna exhaust this today, and you're going to go home with a lot of information today that's going to help you understand. Uh, a lot about life and a lot about why things are the way they are today because the book of Ecclesiastes does something that really no other book of the Bible does. Let's ask God's blessing this morning as we begin to study. Father, we do thank you and praise you for Jesus. We love you. We ask you now, Lord, in a very special way to open up our hearts, show us the truth that you have for us, give us wisdom and insight into all that we have before us today. Let us learn, let us glean, let us take home and apply. We thank you for those that are here today. And we pray, Father, you'll bless us as we study your word. In Jesus' name, for the sake we ask it. Amen. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes has been called the philosopher's book of philosophy. And uh, I believe that to be true. Where the book of Proverbs shows you God's perspective of the world, and the book of Proverbs takes you through the issues of life and shows you what God's opinion is of it, the book of Ecclesiastes does something that just as amazing, but just as totally different where the book of Proverbs shows you what God's concept is, remember now, the Holy Spirit of God searches the hearts of men. And the book of Ecclesiastes is the end result of that search. Uh, I gave you a great verse last week in the book of Proverbs, one of many, Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21, that simply says, There are many devices in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord that shall stand. The book of Ecclesiastes lays out and shows us Christians, men with understanding, women with understanding, it shows us those devices through philosophy. Solomon is the wisest man that ever lived. And at that, he's certainly, as we've studied already, the most unique man in all the Bible. I don't know of another man in the Bible that wears as many hats as Solomon does. Uh, He is the greatest type of Christ. He's one of the greatest types of the Antichrist. He's uh, the wisest man that ever lived. And yet, in a lot of ways, he's the dumbest man that ever lived. I mean, uh, it's an incredible. Uh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a situation where he is certainly unique. He's the wisest man that ever lived, the Bible says, but he's left out of God's Hall of Fame over in the book of Hebrews. Now go figure that one out. And he's a mystery guy. But I believe that there are so many aspects of Solomon that uh, God chose him to use to show us so many different things. Because Solomon as the wisest man that ever lives. Here's what he does in the book of Ecclesiastes. He takes every device that man is going to come up with in the next 5,000 years of history. Every philosophy, every ology of man that he can come up with. Everything that man can... and, And let me give you a definition of philosophy. Philosophy is an unsaved or an unregenerate man who rejects God or rejects the Bible... And through the wickedness and the devices of his own heart, Proverbs 19.21, with the help of the devil, comes up with alternatives that put man in charge of himself and his own destiny rather than in God. And philosophy is nothing more than a man-made device that man uses and supports his position to get him around accepting Jesus Christ as his own personal Savior. I mean, that's just simply what it is. Solomon goes through every ology, every philosophy. Solomon goes through the devices of a man's heart and lays them out And at the end, in every chapter. And at the end of the book, he makes one of the greatest statements that has ever been made down through history by any mortal man. He says, okay, I've laid these things out. I've looked into these things. I'm the wisest man that ever lived. God has given me the ability to study them and to lay them out and to look at them. I've laid them out book of Ecclesiastes is the mind of the Spirit, by Solomon doing that, the Holy Spirit of God laid out, wrote out, laid bare for you and for me, all the devices that an unsaved man will come up with on his life on planet Earth, and wrote them in a book, and at the end of that book, the wisest man that ever lived simply said this, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter, and this is the key to the book of Ecclesiastes, much like uh, uh, the book of Judges, verse key is the last verse in that, much like many of the books of the Bible, he says the conclusion is this, Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And we will come through that in a little bit later on. Now, in your Bible you have two warnings. I mean, you have many warnings, but there's two particular warnings. And the first warning is about science, falsely so-called, over there in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 30, I believe it is. The second warning is found in Colossians chapter two verse eight, and it is a warning against philosophy. One warning against science, one warning against philosophy. And the Bible says in Colossians chapter two verse eight, "Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Clearly showing us, the composite here of philosophy is vain deceit, traditions of men. And the rudiments of the world, and we 're going to remember that we 're going to come back to that just a little bit later on. Book of Ecclesiastes shows us the mind of god 's spirit, which we are told searches the hearts of men. and as I already said, the book of Ecclesiastes then is a is the result of that search, laying out for us everything that you as a Christian and me as a Christian, are going to find and experience as far as the devices of man's heart. Because the thing you have got to realize, and you've got to get this one simple basic truth down, that all the teaching in the world outside the Word of God exists for one purpose. And that is to get you around the issue of trusting Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior. It's as simple as that. Now, in understanding the danger of philosophy... And understanding how it works in the book of Ecclesiastes, I'm going to take just a few minutes, and I want you to, I want to help you understand philosophy by giving you a brief history of philosophy. Because I think this is vital as far, from the Bible standpoint. And I think that it's it's very vital that you get a basis from which uh, you can look at these devices to see how they develop, because it's quite an incredible thing. (laughs) I mean, I'm going to give you here in the next five or ten minutes what I ought to give you in about uh, 160 hours, but... uh, we don't have time for that, uh, but we'll do what we can do. You know, when you come to your Bible, from Genesis probably to first uh, and second chronicles there, at least up to first Second Samuel, let's say that. From Genesis, first and Second Samuel, you find that the nations on this planet, uh, there's no real philosophy. All there's pagan traditions, there's mythology. There's all of the things that you find. Uh, you know, they've named the uh, they've named the constellations, and uh, which we call astrology today. You know, they called it astrology back then, and uh, they have told the story of the stars based on the uh, Babylonian uh, mysticology and the Egyptian and the uh, from Genesis chapter six. And you have all these things floating around, uh, which. Tend to religions and build mythology, uh, their traditions, their stories, every culture has its own religion, every culture has its own female deity that they worship, every culture worships some form of the sun, and every culture has its own story that goes along with that. But by the time you come to First and Second Samuel, when David comes on the throne and then Solomon, you find that the world is impregnated with the, with the Old Testament word of God. You'll find that literally, and you don't get this in school, you never will, but you'll find that during the time of David and certainly the time of Solomon, the whole world knows who God is. That doesn't mean they accept Him, but it means that God is known throughout the world. We see examples of that by the Gentile nations coming into Jerusalem, Queen of Sheba being one of them, who meet with Solomon because they've heard of the fame of all that Solomon's kingdom is. This is played down in the modern day uh, secular educational system simply because they're anti-Semitic, they're anti-God, they're anti-Bible and they want to play down the nation of Israel uh, so you'll never hear about it as far as how great that kingdom was. But during that period of time, God's name was known around the known world. And the reason for that is, is because Solomon's reign, as you know, is a picture of the millennium. And during the millennium, the book of Hebrews says very clearly that the whole world's going to know who God is. After we see Solomon leave, and we've studied this already, we get into the second Chronicles, we find that the kingdom gets split and then it goes into apostasy. And we know that God draws a line in the sand, so to speak, in our Bible and in history. We've talked about it before. We see the end of the kingdom of heaven in the Old Testament and we see the start of the times of the Gentiles. During that period of time, for the next 400 years, for the next 400 years, till the first coming of Christ, for the next 400 years, these are called the great silent years. God gives nothing to man from, the, from, from heaven. The only revelation of God that man has is what he already has written in the Old Testament. And uh, by the way, just as a kind of a, a piece of sirloin steak to throw out to you, you can take home and eat later. There's 400 years from when God silently got silent at the end of Second Chronicles to the first coming of Christ when He brought about His Son. And there's 400 years from the writing of the King James six ten eleven until the second coming of Christ when God reveals Himself. And in between those two times, there's nothing written from God. So all this other stuff you get is worthless if you just follow the line of your Bible but that's more we got to have time to get into today and I probably just ate some tape up that I shouldn't have eaten but anyway so we begin to understand it we see during this time the great gentile nations Babylon Persia Greece and Rome and uh, I want to talk to you about where Babylon was a was a uh, uh, a military nation when Persia comes along Persia becomes a really a political nation. And it's with Persia that the Jews get to go back, but then we have Greece. And the Greek Empire uh, becomes the, uh, the great em- greatest empire as far as knowledge and wisdom is concerned, as far as the world is concerned, in the history of mankind. The Greek Empire impacted the world in such a, such a way that it set the stage for modern day philosophy. In fact, When you go back and you study in secular history books, and you will study the Greek Empire and even the Roman Empire, those two empires are called the classical civilizations. In other words, they're civilizations that uh, put about for us a classical way of thinking, which we call philosophy today. And when the Greek Empire comes on the scene, as I said, it impacts the world in an incredible way. And uh, you're going to find that with the Greek Empire, you find the three great philosophers that all the world knows about. The first one, of course, is Socrates. Socrates says, the only thing I know is I don't know nothing. He thinks his philosophy of life is no harm will befall a good man after death. And he lays down the basis for uh, much of the philosophy that is carried on traditionally, and he has a pupil. That pupil is our second great philosopher. His name is Plato. And uh, in his book on Apologies, uh, he states that all governments, all nations, and all people should be run by a select group of philosophers. And, of course, we see this come to to light a little bit later on, as we'll talk about. He has a pupil. His star pupil is a guy by the name of Aristotle and Aristotle, he teaches uh, kind of a pragmatic form of philosophy which simply says whatever uh, whatever works is what's right. And you'll find that these three men and their teachings, and their, as they lay things out, really impact the world. And uh, to this day, to this day the Greek Empire is looked at as the seed of all knowledge. Alexander the Great, the great military campaigner, he uh, by the time he's 30 years old or 33 years old, he's conquered all the known world. And he follows, as the Greeks puts herself into all the colonies that they conquer, you find the wisdom of the Greeks. It impacts the world in such a degree that even our democratic form of government comes from a, a man by called a democratus, who uh, you find with the Greek empire, the very basic seeds of our democratic society is formed with the Greeks. You can't go to a college in America today where the uh, sororities or the fraternities aren't all uh, categorized by uh, Greek letters or Greek symbols because the Greeks are always associated with wisdom and knowledge. At the demise of the Greek Empire, about 100 B.C., all this great philosophical wisdom, all, that, all the great teachings of Aristotle, Socrates, and Plato, and all of the things that they brought they have formed now into their country. Into their, I mean, they have they've immersed themselves with the philosophical ideas of life, and not everybody agreed with everybody. But it's a hodgepodge of all these great things. But it all came down to one great concept that the Greeks and the Romans, and unfortunately the United States of America, all fell into, and in just about any country in the world today. And it comes down to the concept that the chief uh, uh, pleasure is the chief good in life. And that we exist for one reason, and that is to have as pleasurable a life as we can. And of course, uh, at the demise of the Greek Empire, about 100 B.C., when you find a, uh, the Battle of Carthage with Carthaginians and Roman de Vizem and all that little stuff that goes on in there, uh, you find that they are, one, totally pagan, two, completely sports crazy, three, completely sexually perverted, and yes, number four, they are run by a select group of philosophers that have torn apart the Greek Empire to such a degree and eroded it to the place where it has just collapsed upon itself. And if you cannot see the connection between that and the United States of America today because of philosophy, I'll give you one better than that. If you can't see that and the breakdown of the church today because of philosophy, then you know what? You're, you're certainly blind or, uh, and cannot see the things that the way it is. Rome conquers them around 100 B.C. Like I said, through the... Uh, uh, with the Carthaginians and all of that they fight back and forth and they take over for a while that great Phoenician city in North Africa and you know finally about uh, 100 BC Rome comes to power and Rome comes to power we find again philosophers and Rome hitchhikes off of what Greece does and you'll find that the Roman Empire now is a vast network of roads in fact we've talked about this I think it was on a Thursday night where somebody asked a question, and the phrase is that all roads lead to Rome, uh, because of the fact that back then it did, and uh, Rome conquered the No world, but a time that Christ shows up, Rome running all of Europe. She's running all of Africa, North Africa anyhow. She's got, she's got colonies absolutely everywhere. And we find now that the Roman Empire, their seat of learning and understanding, is in a place in Egypt called Alexandria. Alexandria around this time, about 100 B.C. up to about 200 A.D., Alexandria is the seat of the world's knowledge. In there exists one of the greatest libraries of the great Alexandrian library that you're ever going to find in all of the ancient world. All of the teachings of the great Greeks were were housed there, And you find that all of this is coming about because in these 400 years between the end of the kingdom of heaven and the first coming of Christ, the devil made sure that by the time Christ showed up and the Word of God came, there would be 400 years of counterfeits on this planet by which everything would be uh, trying to just take away from the Word of God. This is when your apocrypha is written. This is when the... uh, all of the things that take place that uh, uh, you find that uh, come up later in Christianity that are supposed to be real. And, of course, they're not. You find during this time, 100 B.C. up to about 1,000 A.D., you find uh, guys like, the early guys, like Pantanus, Philo, uh, Clement of Alexandria, and, of course, our old buddy, Origen. And you begin to see that the the philosophy begins to shift. Uh, And here's what they did in Alexandria. I need to tell you this. Here's what they did. And I'm making a long story short, but this is a lot less boring than the guys that I read to have to get all this information, trust me. Here's what they did. Down in Alexandria, they had all the works of Aristotle, Socrates, and Plato. They also had a guy by the name of Esophagus, but he was tough to swallow, so nobody really read him. But but during this period of time, they, they brought all of these teachings together, and they also had the writings of Solomon. They also had the Old Testament. And what these men did is that they brought about different forms of philosophy like theism, like deism, uh, like paganism, and we'll talk about them a little bit later on, where they began to mix and match Greek, Roman, and Old Testament Bible together. They began to correct the writings of Solomon. They'd be able to take from the writings of Solomon and the Greeks and the Romans and all of the Babylonians and the Egyptians, and they began a hodgepodge of mishmash called philosophy that had a little bit of everything in it. From that will be spin-offs of knowledge and wisdom as an individual took those and began to cultivate a new way of thinking. And Clement of Alexander, as Philo, as Philo, the word Philo, philosophy comes from him, uh, you're going to find that men like Origen and men like uh, Pantanus, all in Alexander, Egypt, all corrupt the Old Testament. Now Origen, one of our boys that lives after the time of Christ, around 180 A.D., he, not, he takes the New Testament and does the same thing that Pantanus and some of these boys did with the Old, and Philo did with the Old Testament. And all these men are connected with the uh, the Alexandrian um, library there, the great seat of worldly learning. Then we come up to about 300 AD with the course, you, most of you know this, that the great turn of events with Constantine, where he takes the pagan Roman Empire and makes it the Papal Roman Empire. And we go from pagan Rome to the Roman Catholic Church, Uh, around 313-325 A.D. This is talked about in your Bibles in Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, where it's called the Pergamos church period, which means much marriage. And it simply means a time when the Christian church was married to the philosophy of Alexandria and the Greeks and the Romans. From that we see all of the stuff that creeps into Christianity and with that we see more philosophers, men like Origen, men like Augustine, men like Alcan, men like Thomas Aquinas and men that uh, brings us up to about the Reformation. During the Reformation you know what happens and these are called the Christian philosophers. There isn't any worldly philosophers yet. You have the worldly philosophers in Greek and Rome, but when Rome switches to to the, to the religious side, all we have now are religious philosophers. Religious philosophers within the Roman Catholic Church. That's why all of the priests in the Roman Catholic Church, many of them are atheists, many of them are philosophers. Many of them have no belief about the, uh, anything about the Bible. They're all humanist in their, 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 because they have been trained in the humanistic concepts of Alexandria. And even though they're in a church called the Roman Catholic Church during this period of time, there's very little few of them who really believe the Bible and God the way that they even should and that's why you'll find that men like Martin Luther, men uh, who come out of the Roman Catholic Church, Savannah Rola, men uh, who come out of the Roman Catholic Church, many of them at their beginning are, are deities, or they're, they're philosophers, and they embrace the truth, they find the truth, they get saved, and of course they leave the Roman Catholic Church. But it brings us up to the Reformation. And at the time of the Reformation, we find where the world is shocked and wrecked, and the Roman Catholic Church gets clobbered, and of course the, the Gospel uh, goes out to the world. After that, we find that the Roman Catholic Church institutes what they call the the, uh, Counter-Reformation. And they open up a period of time where they're going to regain what they lost. And of course, they do this through education. They do this by the Roman Catholic Church sitting down and saying, we will control Europe and the minds of Europe because we will put together a secret organization called the Society of Jesus, called the Jesuits, Uh, Under Ignatius Loyola and we will take those men and we will infiltrate into every university in Europe and 200 years after the Reformation, the Reformation was killed, the Reformation was dead, the churches were dead because the Roman Catholic Church through the Jesuits, we went back in and reacquired the minds of Europe through education. You know how they did it? Through philosophy. They took philosophy. That's why every dictator in the European theater in the world, that's why every philosopher, every philosopher, every dictator, Stalin, Adolf Hitler, Mussolini, every one of them were trained by the Jesuits. Many of them started out to be priests and wound up switching over and took their philosophy of life to, uh, to bring about the destruction of this world through the Roman Catholic Church as the church brought everybody back. Thomas Hobbes, George Berkeley you know, Berkeley in in California. David Hume, Christian Wolfe, Isaac Newton, Spizona, Voltaire, Kant, Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud was so caught up into all of the uh, philosophy and that stuff that he actually hated Christianity and Christians so desperately that, and he believed, again, that the world should be run by a a group of select psychologists uh, that he started his practice on Easter Day in contempt for uh, in contempt for Christianity. Little did he know that he was right in tune because Easter is not a Christian day to begin with as far as the Bible is concerned. But he didn't know that. He's figured it out since, but too late now. But anyway, you've got Frischbach. You've got Nietzsche. And these are the boys that run from about 1500 to 1900. And by the time do we get to Nietzsche, we find that philosophy has come to the point now where man, and I told you the definition of philosophy, where man has brought himself to the point where he doesn't need God anymore and the concept with Nietzsche is, of course, God is now dead. And that's where these are men are called the German rationalists. And these are the men that are the European thinkers that take the basic concepts that come through the Roman Catholic Church from the Greeks, from Plato, Aristotle, and mix it and match it and bring it about to uh, uh, take it over from there. From 1950 to our day and age we live in, we have men like Menziger, uh Mauer, B.F. Skinner, J. Adams, Gosser, Narymore, uh, Rogers, and right up to your old buddy, Dr. Phil. All of these guys today are hitchhiking off of the things that were done back uh, there. We just change it and add it, as you'll see in just a little bit. They're all run by the Roman Catholic Church. I don't mean that these men particularly are getting paychecks by the Roman Catholic Church every month to do it. I'm saying the institutions that trained them were Jesuit. They were, had one goal, that is to destroy the Bible and man's life and to uh, operate in the realm of philosophy. You see, the Roman Catholic Church has one advantage that we don't have. I care what you think today about the Bible. You can't be a Bible-believing Christian and not believe the Bible. You can't be a Baptist today and not believe the Bible. But you can be a rank pagan atheist that doesn't believe in anything in the world about the Bible and still be a good Roman Catholic, as long as you don't leave the church. You see, that's the difference. So they, ah, Because I know where your mind was going. Well, how can the Roman Catholic Church do all these terrible things? Because the Roman Catholic Church has one goal. That is control and command. They want to control everything and command everybody. And the way they do that is by letting you do whatever you want to do. And as long as you don't leave the church, you can believe what you want to believe. That's why in Africa, there are priests, Roman Catholic priests, who are witch doctors. And they don't care that Monday through Friday they're doing a hooba-hooba-hooba out there and doing all the things that they do, as long as Sunday they're baptized Roman Catholics. And that's the mindset that, of course, they have. And the evidence of this is because the Roman Catholic Church builds into the educational system that you, who are educated, been to college, not you guys, but you become more loyal to your school than you ever would the Bible. That's what they want. That's why you find such an intense loyalty. I'll tell you the truth. That's why they build into it all the sports, all the things that draw you back in. That's why they have the alumni association. They want an intense loyalty about their school because the Roman Catholic concept is is believe in your school. You know what? That's the first thing that they ask a Baptist preacher today when he's going to candidate for a church. Where did you go to school? That's the first question they want to know. You know what they want to know? They want to know where your alma mater is. And the whole Roman Catholic system wants you to be faithful to your alma mater. Whatever school you came from becomes the premier concept of your life because it's that school that gave you truth. And the devil satanically through all this stuff, and the average American, the average European can't even see it, the average Christian can't even see it. That the devil wants you to be more faithful to your alma mater, whether you're lost or you're saved, than he does the Word of God. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, Alma is Hebrew, Alma, Alma Mater. Alma is Hebrew for virgin. Mater is Greek for mom or mother. He wants you to be more faithful to virgin mother, your Alma Mater, than he does the Word of God. See how subtle it is? And that's where philosophy takes you. That's where it goes. And we're in trouble because that's just the end of page one and i got four more to go. Now the book of Ecclesiastes means the preacher. The preacher. Every preacher ought to understand the book of Ecclesiastes because you're up against what the book of Ecclesiastes takes head on and that is the philosophy of this world and it shows the man of understanding what he's up against. Now the breakdown of the book is really easy. Chapter 1 through chapter 4 simply takes under the heading of all is vanity. Chapter 5 through chapter 10 talks about the devices of a man's heart. And in chapter 11 and chapter 12, you hear Solomon's conclusion. And we'll talk about that just a little bit. He hears the conclusion of the whole matter. Now, the book teaches several absolute truths about the Holy Spirit of God in history that you have to see. You have to see. First of all, it teaches that the Holy Spirit of God runs in a circuit, a pattern. I want you to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and I want to pick it up in verse 1 and read some verses here. Follow with me. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. I don't have time to go into those three titles, but they're quite interesting to go through. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, always vanity. What profit hath a man of all his labor, which he taketh under the sun? Now watch very carefully. Verse 4. One generation patheth away, and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. The sun also ariseth, and its sun goeth down, and hasteneth to the place where he, not it, arose. The wind goeth toward the south, and turneth about unto the north. It whirls about continually, and the wind returneth again according to his, not its, circuits. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full unto the place from whence the rivers come. Thither they will return again. Now, I don't know how much you can pick out of that, but let me just make it easy for you. You've got all three aspects there showing you that the absolute truth about the Holy Spirit of God, God in history always run in a circuit. Verse 5 says there uh, the sun also ariseth and the sun goeth down that's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a His. Malachi chapter 4 Psalms 119. The next one in verse 6 says the wind type of the Holy Spirit of God. The wind goeth to the south, turneth about to the north, it whirleth about continually and it comes back. It's got circuits. The last one, verse uh, 7, is the Word, all the rivers run into the sea, showing you that God is a circular pattern, the Holy Spirit of God has a circular pattern, and the Bible is a circular pattern. We've talked about it before. And you're going to find the greatest thing that that these books lay out is those three aspects. And you're going to find that the Holy Spirit of God, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, filed a flight plan. The Bible says the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. God's Spirit begins to move, and you never find it stopping or resting anywhere throughout through the Word of God. The book of Ecclesiastes shows you it's got circuits. It runs according to a pattern. It runs according to a plan. That plan is given in the Bible as east to west. That's why every move in the Bible east to west is good. That's why every move west to east in the Bible is bad. It's as simple as that. It's pretty simple. The second thing you want to see is the cycle of history itself. History always repeats itself. Uh, You're told this in Job chapter 8, verses 8 through 10, where he says, if you want to learn, ask the fathers. Chapter 1, verse 9 of the book of Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. And of course, this is probably the greatest key uh, to all of the Bible and Bible history. The book of Ecclesiastes shows you that man through time just reshapes repackages, reforms, remixes, rematches the old phony baloney philosophy from Aristotle, Socrates or Plato and all the boys that we mentioned before. Puts a new bow on it, new package on it, gives it a new paint job, brings it up to dumb stupid people who don't have any understanding and says look I've got something new. When the truth of the matter is that which is called new is not true and that which is true is not new. (laughs) Mm. I told you, it's like a bowl of chili. Chili cook off. <laughs> Two things on my mind today, chili and Twinkies. The Bible is in there someplace. I'm looking forward to good chili and praying for Twinkies. That's where I'm at. But anyway, that's what it is. When you make a bowl of chili, when you make a bowl of chili, when you make a bowl, of, who else is making chili? I don't want to offend anybody, by your, you, you you making chili in a deal, honey. You are. Okay. Any other women going to do Chili? I thought, oh, you're going to do chili. Oh, Barb's going to do chili. <laughs> oh, boy, okay. <laughs> you know what you all do? You know why it all taste different? Because you all got different ingredients. And chili is just like philosophy. You have some base things, rudiments, traditions, vain deceit. And then you put it all together. Then you have your own. Now, those are the basics. You guys can't make chili without beans. You can't make chili without hamburger. Those are the basics. But then you have your secret ingredients that nobody in the whole world, not even God, knows about. And that is what brings it all into fruition and makes your bowl of chili. But the bottom line is, it's just like philosophy. And and really, all philosophy and all chili is the same because the end result, no matter what your spices are, what you do, it still gives you gas. So the bottom line is, that's the great similarity between the two. And I'm telling you, man, that's how this thing works. Now, the third thing that he lays out here is simply this. Everything under the sun... Everything under the sun is an illusion. Now, you learn this truth by studying other places in the Bible. Egypt, one. The book of Daniel is another. When Moses goes in before Pharaoh, he goes in with miracles of God. Those miracles of God that Moses does are the absolute, irrefutable, authoritative things of God. But you ever notice what Pharaoh does? Pharaoh calls in magicians. When Daniel goes before the king to give interpretation, Daniel has the infallible, absolute, final authority, the word of God that he speaks. And what Nebuchadnezzar brings up, to counter it, is magicians. Now you find where one is a picture of the world, Egypt, the other one is a picture of the world system, Babylon. We don't have time to go into all out that today. But you find magicians in both cases. Why? Because magicians cannot reproduce anything. They don't do magic. I mean, I'm impressed. I always try to watch them, but I'm too fast, I mean, too dumb, too slow, I guess. I watched David Copperfield one time make a 747 disappear. I, I mean, I watch a lady float in the air, and they're cutting, throwing underneath there, and at the top, you know, and she's still floating. I mean, I don't understand that. I mean, that's, that's a pretty good trick. I mean, I don't see any wires. It ain't like howdy doody when you used to see the wires glinting in the light, you know, from the TV thing. You say, oh, he's a puppet. No, this woman, I've seen all kinds of stuff. I've seen them put people in there and put them in a box that that box was just square. Put a woman in there, and you close the door, and they put swords all in it and take the swords all out, you know, and they open the box, and the lion comes out. I mean, there's nothing under it, nothing over it. No, I don't figure those things out. But I know this. It's not true. I know this. I know this going in. If an unsaved man in his stupid little piddling arounds on earth can put such an illusion together to fool you and me that you watching it cannot see it, how much better illusion must the devil be able to put on that you and I could look straight at it and not see it unless you got a book that says... Watch this, watch that, watch that. You know how you learn what the magicians do? You get a magician to break down the trick and show you. It doesn't happen very often, but every once in a while they'll show it, and they'll show how he does it, and it's all illusion. Well, what you've got in the Bible is the magician's book of tricks, illusion, this is how to, basic 101. You get understanding how the illusions take place. And that's why everything in the, under the sun is an illusion. It's not real. In fact, there's ten vanities in this book. There's a vanity of wisdom. There's a vanity of labor. There's a vanity of purpose. There's a vanity of ambition. There's a vanity of fun. There's a vanity of, of, uh, of money. There's a vanity of uh, selfishness. There's a vanity of fame, uh, covetousness, reward. All of these vanities, and there's 10 in the book of Ecclesiastes, show you that everything under the sun without God in it is absolutely worthless and it's vain, and it's vanity, and there's all an illusion because these are, the, these are the ten things that we invest our life in trying to attain, trying to get, and when we get because the devil is sleight of hand and he masks it and he hides it and we can't see the trickery and we don't see the illusion of it, by the time you're 80 years old and you're laying on your deathbed, you'll finally see it, but you're too old and too weak to do anything about it. That's how he operates. That's how he works. Everything under the sun is an illusion. The next thing he shows you is that what is really new is above the sun. If you want what is really new, it's above the sun in the Bible. A new birth, a new Jerusalem, a new song, a new heaven, a new earth, a new covenant, a new name, and a new nature. They're all above heaven. They're not below it. Everything that is new is above it. Everything that is not new, that is pretended to be new, is underneath of it. In the book of Ecclesiastes, you find a word missing. You need to mark this. You only find it one time in the book of Ecclesiastes. You find it in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 where he's making a reference to something else, but not particularly how it's used everywhere else in the Bible. You'll find the word knowledge. You'll find the word wisdom. But you will not find the word other than that one place. You will not find the word understanding in the book of Ecclesiastes. Because I told you last week, understanding comes from the Holy Spirit in Job chapter 32. The book of Ecclesiastes, you find that word missing. You go through the book, Chapter 1 through chapter 11, you'll find 34 philosophies laid out where he defines those philosophies. You'll find in chapter 1, Epicureanism. Chapter 1, Metaphysics. Chapter 2, Hedonism. Chapter 2, you'll find Fatalism. 3, Pragmatism. 3, Agnosticism. Chapter 3, Atheism. 4, Fascism. 4, Paganism. 5, Deitism. Capitalism. Chapter 6, Socialism. Chapter 8, Gnosticism. Chapter 9, Modernism. Chapter 11, uh, Liberalism or Humanism. And there's 19 more throughout the book. You will find that what he does is he goes through detail. And I won't go through the detail on them now because when we started our church a while back, we went through the book of Ecclesiastes on a couple of Thursday nights. And all of those are detailed out on, on CD that you can get them. If you want to go through them, we certainly don't have time to do it this morning. But they're all there. He lays out all of these and we find that a new key phrase comes into our vocabulary. A key phrase that uh, uh, we find that we've never found before in the Bible, and it's the phrase called vexation of spirit. These philosophies that these devices in a man's heart, when they come about, and they come into our lives and we, we, uh, we embrace them because they're illusions, because they're not true, because they're certainly not new, and because we forsake the things of God and we put God out of our lives, God out of our minds, God out of our country, God out of our schools, God out of everything. And we think that all these great philosophies are going to sustain us. We find out that a great new truth comes in called the complexity or the compound effect. That the more you have without God the less satisfied you become. And the bottom line of all that is vexation of spirit. Vexation of spirit is nothing more than you trying to put all of these things into your life without God. Finding out that there's no satisfaction in this life without the things of God. There's no satisfying the flesh. I mean... (laughs) That is the greatest single truth about life you and I will never learn. That's why our lives are in a mess, that's why they're so complicated, that's because we get into these things, we operate with a philosophy of life, Oh, I'm going to party I'm going to live my own life, and it looks good and it sounds good, but as time goes on, life gets more complex. The ramifications of your sin is more. It spreads out from you to your wife, to your kids, out of your family or whatever, and down the line as you go, it gets more complex. It gets more compounded, and pretty soon your life's a mess, your marriage is a mess, your your everything is a mess, and there is no peace in your soul, and your spirit is vexed by the things of this world. And you come to the, nah, you'll never come to the conclusion that there is no satisfying the flesh outside of Jesus Christ. And then you can't satisfy the flesh. The Bible just shows you how to crucify it daily. When I start to deal with people in, in problems, in counseling, one of the first things that I do is I tell them a stupid little story. But it illustrates this point and every point that I want to make. The story is this. I come home one day, and my wife tells me that the the refrigerator is broken. And we need to call the Maytag repairman, and he'll come over and fix the refrigerator. Well, me being the macho type that I am, I'm not going to concede to a Maytag repairman until I look at it first. So I open it up, you know, and I said, well, I I remember when we bought this, there was an owner's manual with it, and the owner's manual had a back page that says, here's what you do if this don't work. So I'm going through all the drawers, and I find, looking for the owner's manual, and I call my wife at work and say, where's it at? She said, I don't know. I haven't seen it since we bought it. I think you threw it away. And I said, no, 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 no. I would never throw it away. It's here someplace. And after hours of searching, I've come to a great conclusion. I'm an intelligent man. I'm a fair guy. I I I know up and down, left and right. I can work things out. So I suddenly pull out the manual for the toaster and decide I'm going to fix the refrigerator with a handbook from the toaster. Now that is probably the most absolutely absurd thing that I could ever do because I'm looking at this thing and the toaster is not even shaped like the refrigerator. The toaster does not hold as much, it does not do the same thing, nothing is the same. But I am intent on fixing this refrigerator with the handbook from my toaster. And the absurdity of that is after 100,000 years of working at it, my refrigerator is still broke. And nothing is fixed because I can't fix it with that book. The absurd of that is simply this: You are made by God in God's design, and God gave you are carbon-14 units. You think you're human, you're not. You are carbon-14 units. God made you out of the dust of the ground, and in the dust of the ground are the same 14 elements that uh, you have in your body. And God made you out of the dust of the ground. He made you a carbon 14 unit. And then He wrote a handbook for fixing and maintaining carbon 14 units. You trying to solve your problems with philosophy out of the Greeks, out of the Romans, or any place else other than the author of life who wrote the handbook to fix it is as stupid as me trying to fix my refrigerator with a handbook from the toaster. It won't work. Because there's no satisfying the flesh outside of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Word of God. And if there's one point you've got to get out of this that you never will, and I never will, it is the fact that there is just no satisfying the flesh, and that's what gets us into complexity of problems and vex our spirit. Now, chapter 3, verse 1. Wow, I don't even know how to begin this. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, to everything there is a season and a time, to every purpose under heaven. And then he lists from verse 2 down to verse 8, 28 things. He says a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up that which was planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep. A time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to cast away stone, a time to gather stone, a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to eat, get, a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to cast away, a time to rend, a time to sow, a time to keep silent, a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, time to war, a time of peace, time for peace. 28 things. Now he says everything there is a season. A time to every purpose under the sun. We've already talked about the times and the seasons. We know, that, we know that you and I have a season. We talked about the four seasons that you have and I have. Psalms chapter 1. Many other places that we've looked at. Here in chapter 3 verses 1 through 8, there are 28 things that match the 28 days the moon goes around the earth in conjunction with the sun. So what we got are 28 things that are everything in our lives that we deal with. 28 things that match up to 28 days. The moon, type of the church, goes around the earth, picture of the world, in conjunction with the sun, type of Jesus Christ. And these, my friend, are the issues of life. And you know what? Philosophy can't answer any one of these. These are the issues that you and I are faced with every day. These are the decisions that you and I have to make. These are the things that are, co- are connecting to these things that we have to struggle with. Everything in our life, these 28 things, are the issues of life that we face that make the world go around. And philosophy can't answer a one, but anybody with understanding can. For the book, the Word of God, is the only book that defines each one of these in the Bible sense from God's perspective that shows you the purpose of the season under the sun. When the world talks about being born, they don't talk about it the same way God does, because God defines being born in Job chapter 5, verse 7. Same with dying. Chapter 7, verse 2 of the book of Ecclesiastes. You want to learn about planting? It's Jeremiah 18, 9. You want to know what it means to pluck up that which was planted? 2 Chronicles chapter 36. You want to know what a time to kill is? Genesis 9, 6. You want to know what a time to heal? Hosea 6, 1. You want to know what it means to break down? Jeremiah one ten. Build up? Jeremiah 31, 4. You want to know what it is to weep? Psalm 126, 6. You want to know what it is to laugh? Psalm 126, 2. You want to know what it is to mourn? That's Luke chapter nineteen forty one. Time to dance? It ain't talking about the shimmy, shimmy, shimmy you were doing last night. It's Second Samuel chapter six, verse fourteen. Cast away stones. Second Kings three twenty-five. Gather stones. Joshua chapter four, verse nine. To embrace. Uh, Proverbs chapter four, verse eight. Refrain from embracing. Proverbs chapter seven. Proverbs chapter five. Time to get. Time to lose. Judgment seat of Christ. First Corinthians chapter three. Time to keep. Revelation chapter three, verse eight. Revelation sixteen fifteen. Revelation three eleven. Time to cast away. Isaiah chapter thirty-one, verse seven. Time to rend. Uh, Matthew chapter twenty-seven, verse fifty-one. Time to sow, Proverbs thirty-one. Saw it last week. Time to keep silent, Proverbs 26, 4. Time to speak, Proverbs 26, 5. Time to love, Psalm 119, verse 97. Time to hate, Psalm 139, 22. Time to war, Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. And a time for peace, Revelation chapter 20. All defined for you in the Bible, and from those definitions, every issue of life gets laid out and gets defined. You know why? This is the book that defines it. This is the owner's manual for every carbon-14 unit that was ever made. I'm telling you, the book gives the sense, and without the sense, man is left to himself to give the definitions for being born, dying, planning, healing, breaking down, building up, breakdown, nervous breakdown, twitches in your eye, whatever the case may be, and the whole thing falls apart because man has no concept of what he's laying out. All right, lastly... Chapter 11 and chapter 12, three great conclusions of life on planet Earth that you need to see. I've given you a pretty fair evaluation of a book of Ecclesiastes. Boy, Thursday night Bible study had to be hot and heavy this week as you go through those things, but I'm telling you. Let me talk to you about the three great conclusions. I've told you before, and I'll continue to tell you this, there's only two things in this world, in this life, worth investing your life in. Because they're the only two things that are eternal. One of them is the word of God, the other one is the souls of men. In chapter 11, verse 1, you see a great conclusion. Now I want to read this to you, and I want to make some comments for you. And I want this to be one of the great conclusions out of everything that we've seen that the world has to offer. We're getting ready to look at the final result that Solomon says before he closes the book. But here's the concept. Three great conclusions. Chapter 11, verse 1. Cast thy bread upon the waters, for thou shalt find it after many days. Give a portion to seven, and also to eight, for thou knowest not what evil shall be upon the earth. If the clouds be full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth, and if the trees fall toward the south, or toward the north, in the place where the tree falleth, there shall it be. He that observeth the wind shall not sow, and he that regardeth the clouds shall not reap. As thou thou knowest not what is the way of the Spirit, nor how the bones do grow in the womb of her that was with child, uh, even so thou knowest not the works of God who maketh all. In the morning sow thy seed, in the evening withhold not thy hand, for thou knowest not whether thou shalt prosper either this or that, or whether they both shall be alike good. Now one of the greatest passages in the Word of God, and he says in 11.1, cast thy bread upon the waters. Now, when you come through the Word of God, you'll find that bread is a picture of the Word of God. Book of Exodus, where the manna comes down, I think it's Exodus 16, some places back there. Uh, you're going to find uh, John chapter 6. Jesus Christ calls himself the bread of life, which came down from heaven. It's all an incredible picture. Psalm 78, you know, all kinds of places. And yet he says, cast thy bread upon the water. Waters are a picture of people, nations. You find that uh, over there in uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 17, verse 15, and Isaiah seventeen twelve. And he says, Cast thy bread upon the waters, for thou shalt find it after many days. It's a great principle. Isaiah 55, says this. It says that the Word of God does not return void. And it likens it to water, rain coming down on a planet. And the Bible says the Word of God does not return void, but accomplishes the purpose whereto God has sent it. There's always one thing you can relax in when it comes to putting out the Word of God, and that is that God will use it. You can throw, put something out and nobody will ever give it. You can give somebody your phone number and they'll never call you. You can give somebody your address and will never come by and see you. You cannot give somebody the word of God and God won't use it in their life at some point. That is a promise you got. Now the job is to us, and the conclusion is this. We live in a world, we live in a world that is totally against God and everything that is. We live in a world that has embraced every one of these th- philosophies, these theologies, these ologies, We live in a world that is filled with man's devices to get man around the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are the only stop between that and hell. And the Bible says that your job and my job is to cast the bread upon the water. That's the job of this church. That's the job of every individual. That's what I'm telling you. That's why we, as a church, have to find a way to penetrate this culture. Now, we know how to do it. I know how to do it. The problem is getting us to the point where we're ready to do it. Starting out that we realize, you know, and I'm going to tell you, we've talked about how that growing in the ward, Lord and all that is a balance is the key. And I'm telling you, here's the dilemma we all face. Here's the dilemma we all face, me and you. And it's real simple. The problem is balance. You know what? You go to a church where they don't teach you the Word of God, you just get a lot of pigskin stuff, a lot of fooling around stuff, and you know what? It has an effect on you, and you never come to the place where you, you get lazy. And you get lazy because nobody's keeping you accountable, and human nature is such, you get lazy. You don't get anything, so you get lazy. You know what? There's an extreme to that on the other side, and that is when you go to the church that you get a lot, and you get everything, and you don't have to dig for a lot yourself, and you come every Sunday and take a tape and fill up the next six months of your life studying the Bible and somebody does it for you. There's a tendency to get lazy there too. And there lies the danger. The only thing that keeps you and me from getting lazy is getting shot at. Being in the war. A combat soldier, a guy in the rear with the gear that sleeps all the day and gets to eat all the food he wants, gets his, gets, is different than a guy that is out there where every move he hears may be somebody trying to kill him. He'll stay on top of it a lot quicker than the guy in the back that knows that he don't have to think about anything because somebody else is protecting everything, and he's in a protecting environment. And that is the same problem we find ourselves in every church on the face of this planet. And they fall into two categories. There's one over here where they don't give you anything, and you get lazy. Or you go where you get everything you could ever want, and it's the greatest thing in the world, and you just love it, and you wouldn't trade it for anything in the world, and you, I love it. But the bottom line is you still get lazy because it's easy to get out of the battle. And the only way to stay in a battle is to find out a way to penetrate your culture with the Word of God and then do it and then take the hits as they come. And that simply is casting your bread upon the water we got to be witnesses. we got to invite people to church. we got to win people to Christ. And when we have events that we do, we, and I know, I know there's no way you can invite the same people over and over again because they're going to shoot you. I understand that. But the bottom line is this. When we have events that we can open it up and there's different avenues, you've got to use it. You've got to see it as a tool just like a craftsman sees the tools in his toolbox and knows how to fix whatever he's got to fix. Because if we don't, we fall into this lackadaisical society mindset where we just come, we get fat, we get all the Bible, but we really don't do anything with it because we're so satisfied with what we've got. And in this verses, he tells you of that urgency. He says, you'll find that after many days, you'll get it back. God's Word doesn't return void. Then he says, give a portion to seven and also to eight. Thou knowest not what evil shall be upon the earth. We know that God's number is seven. We know that God does everything by sevens. And yet he says, not only go seven, but go eight. Go over and above what God expects of you. The only thing that will keep you from falling back and me from falling back in a lackadaisical attitude is not just giving. I'm not talking about money now. I'm just talking about your relationship with God. Not just giving the status quo. You've got to give above that because any athlete that everyone, any Award, event, Olympics, gold crown, silver crown, whatever the case, he didn't get it by just doing the status quo. He won it by going over and above. And let me tell you something, the judgment seat of Christ is going to be the same way. And you better grasp it. He says. Give a portion to seven and also to eight. Get your head out of the clouds and realize where you're at, what you're doing. Keep your priorities focused and then do what you need to do. Because you don't know what evil, you don't know where you're at. You don't know where God has put you. You don't know what's around you. You can't see into the spiritual world. You've got to cover all the bases and you've got to cover them good. Why? Verse 3, if the cloud be full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. You know what he's saying? God's judgment's coming. And just like when the clouds get full of rain and water, they dump it. God's judgment is going to come just as surely as the clouds get filled up with water, the rain falls. And here's what he says: If the tree, people like trees in the Bible. One time in the New Testament, Jesus said to a guy, "What do you see?" He says, "I see people walking around like trees." Antichrist is called the great bay tree. The righteous say people are called palm trees. You're going to find that people in the Bible like trees. And he's saying, if the clouds be full of rain, they empty themselves. God's judgment is coming. And if the tree, a man, fall to the earth, if the tree fall toward the south or toward the north, in the place where the tree falleth, there shall it be. He says, you be your bit about your father's business. You better be casting the bread upon the water, because when that tree falls, it either goes to heaven or hell, north or south, and wherever it goes, that's where it stays. Credible conclusion. And then he says in verse 4, he that observeth the wind shall not sow. And he that regardeth the cloud shall not reap. You know what he's saying? Don't focus on what's around you. Don't focus on the cloud. Don't focus on the opposition. Don't focus on what scares you. Don't focus on this. Don't focus on that. He's saying, hey, look, if you observe the wind, you will not sow. Forget the world. Gay on course. Hold the line. Understand that your job and my job against the world of philosophy, the, all the ideologies, all the things that go on, our job is to cast the bread upon the waters, We'll find it after many days. Give over and above what God has called you to do. Judgment's coming. And when a man dead and in hell, that's where he's at. He says, verse 6, So in the morning, so thy sea. In the evening, withhold not thy hand. For thou knowest whether thou shalt prosper either in this or in that. You don't know what God is going to do with it. You just know that God is going to do something with it. And the job of this church and the job of you and me as individuals is to put out the Word of God, contact as many people as we can, show them Christ, do everything in our power, to get them to understand where they're at, where we're doing, and bring them to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then the second thing that he says, second great conclusion, is chapter 12, verse 1. Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. It's an incredible thing. I told you that last week that there's four seasons in our lives, and we as Christians, we have have young men and young ladies that God brings into our lives that get saved, come in and want to learn the Bible, and it's our job to make sure that they get a foundation in their life when they're young in Christ. It's also true of your own children. That there's a time in your kid's life when you can influence them for the right thing because the evil days haven't come yet. But, oh, well, when you get into Daniel chapter 1, well, when you get into some of those places in the Old Testament, you'll find that there's an evil day coming. You'll find it over there in the book of Ephesians where he talks about the evil day, having done all to stand against the evil day. There's an evil day coming in your child's life, and you better prepare him for it. There's an evil day coming in every young Christian that joins this church or gets saved, and we need to prepare him for it. We need to watch out for the little ones, the young ones, the ones that are trying to get their feet on the ground. I'm telling you, remember now thy creator. I I always like that, because specifically this is talking about raising up your children, and I always like the way that he said it in 12.1, remember now thy creator. He didn't say God, he didn't say the Lord God, he didn't say the God of Israel, he didn't say the God of your fathers, he said creator. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit of God in his great infinite mind knew that the issues that your kid and my kid was going to face growing up in the day and age that we lived in, was was God creator. And yes, he was. Then the last thing, the last thing. The last thing over here is, he says in uh, chapter uh, 12, and he starts in verse 10, then he says, the preacher, that's you and me, the preacher sought to find out acceptable words, and that which was written was upright, even words of truth. And the words of the wise are as gourds. "...and as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd. And further, by these, the words of the wise, you see, the words of truth, "...by further, by these, my son, be admonished of making many books, there is no end." We just studied it. All theologies of man, there's no end. Man will write books from the time to eternity against God. He said, "...the making of many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh." See, the study of these books don't do anything for your soul. Your spirit just wearies your flesh. Now watch. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment, with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. There's the conclusion. There's what he says. He says, The preacher sought to find out acceptable words that were written upright, even words of truth. And when he found them, he said, Wow! Wow! There is no end of all the books that are written. And in much study there is much weariness of the flesh. But by these, my son, be admonished the words of truth. Now, when you get the words of truth versus the words of man, the devices of man that we study today, you'll find the conclusion is very clear. Fear God, keep his commandments. That's the whole duty of man. And the book of Ecclesiastes is the mind of the spirit searching out the devices in man's heart, writing a book to you and me about it so we would have the understanding that we would come to the right conclusion in life based on the absolute principles of this book that God has given us, the wisdom books and the complete Bible that show us everything that God wants us to know about the issues of life. 28 issues all connected with the 28 days around the sun, with the earth, It'll all bring us in perspective of showing us God's perspective on every issue of life because those are the definitions that'll lay them out for you in the Bible where you can build on them from there. Let's pray. Father,